Hi guys, this is Fiona from IELTS Exam Training Courses and Members Academy. In the Members Academy, we've just finished another month's boot camp. This time it was all about perfect grammar. That means present perfect, past perfect, future perfect and perfect modals. Uh, the boot camp took a month. And we went through every day, <clears throat> every day with a different task. So it uh, could be a video or an activity or some writing or speaking. And then there was a, a weekly Sunday session where I checked your work. So it has been a heck of a lot of work. So I'm sorry the podcast is late, but that course is there for you now with all of the other courses included in the academy. Plus, as you already know, we've now got speaking lessons four times a week. And there with a teacher, my friend called Will, and he has lessons for you twice a day, one in the morning, one around five o'clock. So you can choose your time zone. And as I said, you can take four lessons a week while you're in the Members Academy where everybody knows each other's name. It's a small and growing community, but I like to keep it like that. I like to know everybody who's there. It's uh, friendly. We've got writing every Friday. I mark your work personally. I mark and correct everybody's work and then I go through it every Friday. You get a different task and you get different lessons to help you as well. So there's a lot going on in the Members Academy. And if you've got any questions about it, then please do let me know. So today I've had another request for a difficult reading. It really is. It's actually a passage one reading and it's called Attitudes to Language. Oh my goodness. It's like one of those linguistic degrees that you need. You know, I always say you need a degree in biology and a degree, degree in psychology. Well, this one you need a degree in, in linguistics or something. But it, it's really interesting. But again, if you've got this background knowledge to the topic, then it will help you. I only have this background knowledge because I did my master's in linguistics. So it, it just seems so unfair that a topic like this would come up. But anyway, I'm going to try and break it down for you. As usual, if the text is difficult, then the questions tend to be easier. And this one, the questions are true, no, yes, no, not given, which is basically true, false, not given. And uh, matching words, well, it's gap fill, but they give you the answers. So you have to put the right words in the gaps. And then there's a final question about the writer's purpose. So the questions really aren't too bad. And I hope you'll see when we look at the yes, no, not given, the tricks that I normally teach you are all there. You can see them. The, the, the idea that you can probably guess some of the answers from A, what you know, B, the way they're written, and C, the, the clues that I'm going to talk you through today. And I'd like to just introduce you a little bit to the topic so that it'll be easier for you to follow. 
Um, the first line says it is not easy to be systematic and objective about language study. So it's all about language, they say, belongs to everyone. So everyone has a different opinion about it. And, and, and this reading divides that opinion into kind of two types of people. Um, the first type is the, well, the, it's called prescriptivism. So if you think of a prescription, it's what the doctor gives you in terms of medicine. So it's the doctor says you must take this medicine. So the prescriptive way of thinking is that language should be correct and the we should stick to the rules and we should create rules about grammar and it's it's got slightly negative connotations especially in this day and age and it's it's quite authoritarian another word which comes up you know it's somebody telling you that you must do this and considered maybe a, a little old fashioned that old fashioned approach now, then, about halfway through, it introduces a new way of thinking about um, linguistic usage. And it says it is the task of the grammarian to describe language, not to prescribe language. Remember, prescribe is the doctor telling you what you must do. But this other type of linguist says you should just let language develop naturally and um, uh, describe it, <laughs> just, set, just describe what you've noticed happening. And an example of this, I don't know if this is similar where, where you are, but where I live in Essex, it's perfectly normal for people to say, I done it. Now, I would teach, I, I did it, rather than I done it. Um, and I believe I did it is correct. To me, I done it sounds wrong. But the people, the descriptivists believe that, well, actually, that's perfectly acceptable because if people say it, then it is correct. And we shouldn't uh, prescribe it, we proscribe it. We shouldn't say that it's wrong. Basically, any language use is correct. That's these are the two arguments. I, I lo I'd love to know what you think about that. Um, because actually in IELTS speaking, if uh, somebody who, whose first language is English, if they say, I done it, it is still considered to be a grammatical error and they would be uh, penalised. They would lose points for using what is considered to be wrong by these prescriptivists. So it's quite an interesting topic anyway. And what, how does it conclude? Let's see. Um, so the last paragraph says, the opposition between descriptivists and prescriptivists has often become extreme, with both sides painting unreal pictures of the other. Descriptive grammarians are presented as people who do not care about standards because of the way they see all forms of usage 
as equally valid. So even things like, you know, text speak or the way you spell in text messages, some people hate it. Some people say that's natural. That's what happens with language. Um, prescriptive grammarians have been presented as blind adherents to historical tradition, just following those rules blindly. Um, and it's almost political, it says here. It's like radical liberalism. Liberalism meaning, you know, being liberal-minded, accepting everything, compared to elitist conservatism, that idea that we should keep things the same and preserve things. So it is a really interesting article. I always argue with my boss, Max, about language and He's probably, I would say, more liberal than I am. So he says things like there would be less people. And I want to say fewer because it's countable. And then he always argues that these rules like less and fewer were made up in the Victorian era and they should be abandoned. So anyway, <laughs> let's get to it. So let's look at, I've given you the overview if you look now at the yes, no, not given, I'm sure you'd be able to guess the answers. I got all of these without reading it, just because I happen to know this topic. So what would you think about this one? Number one, there are understandable reasons why arguments occur about language. So basically it's saying, of course, everybody understands why you might argue about language. My instinct is to say yes. And of course, yes is the answer. It's in paragraph one. It says language belongs to everyone. So most people feel they have a right to hold an opinion about it. Um, so, yeah, there are reasons. And it does go on a bit more in the second paragraph. So that's a yes. Now, the second one, I have to admit, I got caught because I'll tell you why. The second one is a comparison. Now, I always say look out for comparisons in yes, no, not given and true, false, not given because they usually signal something and it's usually not given. But here it says people feel more strongly about language education than about small differences in language usage. So there's a clear comparison between these two things. And when you look at the text, you have to find, is there a comparison in the text? And it, there is, but it's quite hidden. It says, again, paragraph one, arguments can start as easily over minor points of usage as over major policies of linguistic education. Well, even if you didn't understand a word of that, you've got a comparison. And the comparison is as and as. Arguments can start as easily over small things as over big things. So it's telling us that they are equal. So because they're equal, it means that the statement number two is wrong. People don't feel more strongly about one than the other. They feel the same according to this author. So 
It is given, there is a comparison, but it's not the same comparison as in the statement. So it is mentioned, it is given, and the answer is no. So quick mention here about yes, no, not given. They, I think the only difference with them and true, false, not given is that they refer to the the, the writer's opinion more. So the actual question says, do the statements agree with the claims of the writer? And that's it really. And here the writer just thinks that arguments can start as easily over small things as large things. So they're equal. So number two is no. Number three, what would you guess about this? Our assessment of a person's intelligence is affected by the way he or she uses language. What would you guess? Of course we judge people by the way they use language. So my guess is yes. You go to the text, paragraph two, and it says, linguistic factors influence how we judge personality, intelligence, social status, educational standards, job aptitude, and many other areas of identity and social survival. So yes, without a doubt. Now it comes to this difficult language about prescriptive things. And number four says, prescriptive grammar books cost a lot of money to buy in the 18th century. Now to me, that stands out like a sore thumb. It is not in keeping with the nature of this text. It's why would they mention how, how much these grammar books cost in the 18th century? It's just totally off the point. It's just not relevant. So yes, no or not given. So I go to paragraph three, I follow the 18, so it's easy to find. And all it says is, um, in the 18th century, approach to the writing of grammars and dictionaries. That, that's all. There's no mention of price. So completely not given. Number five, prescriptivism still exists today. What would you guess? Well, I've just kind of said it. The the difference between me and, and Max when we argue about language. Of course it exists today. And if you look in paragraph five, it first line says, these attitudes are still with us. That, and they motivate a widespread concern that linguistic standards should be maintained. Yes. Number six, according to descriptivists, so remember they're the opposite. They just like to describe language, it is pointless to try to stop language change. Now, could you guess? What would you say? They think it's pointless trying to stop language change. Of course, that's what they think. But where are the synonyms? Well, in that paragraph just before the end, we're coming towards the end now, it says um, that... The task of the grammarian is to describe, to record the facts of linguistic diversity 
and not to attempt the impossible task of evaluating language variation or halting language change. Halting means stopping. Um, I've, I've seen halting come up actually as a key word. It comes up in texts like halting climate change and the melting of the poles and stuff like that. I've seen it as an important synonym. So halting means stopping. And then you've got the same word language change. So the question was, is it pointless? Yes, according to them, it is pointless. So it's a yes. Um, number eight, I really had to check this one. I have to admit, I thought it would be not given because there are eight questions here. We've had lots of yeses, only one not given so far and only one no. So I thought, ah, oh, that'll be not given. But listen, descriptivism only appeared after the 18th century. So remember my trick for yes, no, not given. You turn it into the question. You say, when did descriptivism appear? So what have we got? We've got um, in the second half of the 18th century, we find advocates of this view. Advocate meaning somebody in favour. It's a good one to use in task two. Advocates of this view. And he wrote a book in 1761. So descriptivism, when did it appear? It appeared really in 1761. But this statement says after the 18th century. So no, it was before the end of the 18th century. And last one, you could probably guess this now. Both descriptivists and prescriptivists have been misrepresented. Um, it just sounds to me like it's going to be yes, because there's nothing controversial there. And yes, in the final paragraph, it's got the descriptivists, prescriptivists, um, with both sides painting unreal pictures of the other. So yes, they have been misrepresented because that word unreal says that they've given pictures of themselves which are not true. So actually, Strangely, there was only one not given there in eight questions. So that's a little bit unusual. But this is book nine, quite an early book now. Um, yeah, anyway. So let's move on to the gap fill questions. And the first thing you should do is look at the title. And it starts, well, it says the language debate. Hmm. So this is a kind of gap fill where it literally is a summary. It's not focused on one paragraph. And this often happens in the part one. Um, the summary is of almost like the whole thing. And it has got a capital letter in it. It refers to Joseph Priestley, who's the person we mentioned, the advocate of this view, who wrote a book in 1761. So at least you know where they are in the text. So let's look at it. It's quite short, actually. It's just two sentences. It says, according to Gap, there is only one correct form of language. Now, you could fill that now. You already know the answer. You don't need to look at the options. 
but the answer is according to prescriptivists. Um, to me, that's a clear answer. The options you've got, you've got modern linguists, you've got language experts. Well, they don't say there is only one correct form. That was only the prescriptivists who said that. Next line, linguists who take this approach to language place great importance on grammatical what? On grammatical something. Well, what did we say? They like grammatical rules. That's it. And that is the answer. There's nothing else that could fit there. The tricks are formal language, but you can't say grammatical formal language. Um, what else fits there? Grammatical change? No. Grammatical evaluation? No. Grammatical popular speech? No. So the only one that fits there is rules. Remember the plural when you're writing on the answer sheet. Conversely, so this is telling us the opposite, the view of, so we know now it's the opposite view, which must be the descriptivists, such as Joseph Priestley, so that was 11, gap 11, is that grammar should be based on what? So what do they think grammar should be based on? Um, and if you go to the text, Joseph Priestley insists that the custom of speaking is the original and only just standard of any language. He says speaking is the standard we should follow. So the answer for 12c is popular speech. And that just leaves us with question 13. And this kind of question, what is the writer's purpose in reading passage one? I find this quite tricky sometimes, but let's look at the options. So what do you think the purpose of the writer's writing was? A, to argue in favour of a particular approach to writing dictionaries and grammar books. Well, a you know, he didn't talk about how you should write dictionaries and grammar books. In fact, he didn't take a side. He showed both sides. Um, B, to present a historical account of differing views of language. Well, I'm putting my question mark there because, yes, there was a historical account um, talking about the 18th century and it did just give a factual account of these two views. Uh, C, to describe the differences between spoken and written language. Well, no, there was no description of why spoken and written language are different. And D, to show how a certain view of language has been discredited. Well, got a question mark next to that as well. So I've crossed out A and C. There's always two completely out of the question ones. So it leaves me with B. Was it B, a historical account, or C, or, sorry, D, um, did it try to show us that one of these views has been discredited? Discredited meaning 
people now think it's rubbish. Well, I don't think he has discredited either view. He he did kind of say the old-fashioned one and the new modern one, but he didn't say that the old-fashioned one was wrong at all. Um, He said the other people might think it's wrong, but he didn't say that, the writer, he or she. So that leaves us only with the very safe B. It is simply a historical account of different views, differing views of language. There wasn't any attempt to persuade us. It simply gave us the facts, explained what they are, what people think, and over time, how people's views have changed. That's it. Okay, so I hope that has helped. I totally agree. Um, I haven't done this one before. I probably avoided it. I started reading and thought, oh, no. But now I look at it like everything else. When you look at them closely, they're really not that bad. It's not so bad. Please do send me any requests. I really enjoy getting them. And it means that I'm I'm helping you with more of, of what you want. Um, okay. So thanks very much for listening. Uh, let me know if you've got any questions and I'll speak to you soon. Bye bye.